Now, if you're new to New Hope, we've uh, been in the study of the book of John for 57 weeks, and uh, today is the last day, praise God. Um, I thought we did a a long study when we did Revelation for 42 weeks, and uh, yet God just kept revealing himself and revealing himself, and I really, really enjoyed it. You're to be applauded for what you endured and, and what you dug into and what you've taken away from. I've talked to a lot of you about what you've been able to take away from it. It's been, it's been fantastic. This is, this is going to be a magnificent way to end the book of John this morning because I think you're going to get the portrait completed for you. I want to teach you a word before we step in, and the word is katalambano. Sounds like a pasta dish, doesn't it? Okay, it's a great Greek word. It's a compound word. Uh, made up of kata and lambano. Let's say it together on three. One, two, three. Kata, lambano. And here's the reason I want you to understand it. Because it's used in Scripture in a very, very specific way in a verse that if you've been in church for very long, I'm sure you've read the verse before. I want you to look at the definition, though, because it's talking about seizing something, apprehending, like tackling, like MSU trying to tackle Denard Robinson, Okay? They seem to do a pretty good job of that yesterday, all right? It's, it's a, a tackling portion. You're apprehending it in such a way that you want to seize upon it. Now, let's look at how it was used in Scripture. It was used in Ephesians 3, and this is Paul speaking to the church, that you, church, may be able to kata lambano, that you may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, I get that apprehend part. I get the tackling. I understand that. That I'm supposed to apprehend this breadth and width and height and depth. But Paul says at the end, you can't even understand it. It, which it surpasses knowledge. I want you to comprehend that which you can't comprehend, like algebra, okay? You get the picture? When I, when I was in high school, I had the hardest time with algebra. And I, I came to my very first test in my first algebra class, and the teacher had taught us about what the shortest distance is between two points and a straight line, okay? That's the only one I got on the entire test, I got that straight line. I know that answer. Unfortunately, it was the very first question asked, and I bombed on the rest of them. Until I got into college, and I was in aviation, aviation major, and I'm in college-level trigonometry, and I'm dying. And then my flight instructor puts me into the seat of an airplane, and I begin flying, and it clicked with me. Everything's starting to fire on all cylinders. I understood what they were trying to pour into me. All this mathematics made sense when I'm in an aircraft. I started understanding weights and balances, the fulcrum. Everything came together. Why? Because I experienced it. So Paul says, I want you to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. And we understood by looking through the book of John that we've understood God's love for us, that which surpasses all knowledge because he's demonstrated it to us. God, while we were still sinners, demonstrated his love for us in that he gave his son, Jesus, to die for us. So we've got this picture now that God's put the pieces together for us. So what we're going to see this morning is that God knows that it's really hard for us to understand how big this love is, even for those guys who were at the cross 
who watch this thing unfold, we're going to see that at the pinnacle of the greatest moment in the history of the world, God slams the brakes on. And that's how John 21 ends, with God slamming on the brakes to help us understand what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of his love. And he does it on the shore of a lake. So if you have your Bible this morning, turn to John 21. And if you don't have a Bible with you, they're in the pew racks right there in front of you. You can follow along that way. And matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, those are there for your benefit. Take one with you when you leave. It's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So feel free to use that, but you'll also see the verses up on the screen. John 21.1 starts this way. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Now, if you stumble over the word manifest, think materialize. Think Star Trek, okay? Like when they beamed somebody up onto the ship. Jesus materialized in the presence of the disciples. That's why John is referring to this manifested. He, he showed up. Now, the disciples have left Jerusalem. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Jesus said, I want you to leave Jerusalem, go up north, go to the north country, to this region known as Galilee, and wait for me. Go to John uh, 14, or Mark 14, 28 on the screen. He said, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus wanted them to go up there. And then we're told that he wanted them to go to a very specific place. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 28, 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So he didn't just say go up north. He said go up north to the very place I want you to go to and wait for me there. I'm going to come join you. So we're told by John here in chapter 21 that Jesus manifested himself again, but look at the rest of the verse. John says, at the sea. Well, there's a problem. God said, go to the mountain, but Jesus shows up on the beach. What's going on here? Well, let's look on the screen at verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, you learned about him last week, he's the twin, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So if you add all that up, you'll see that there's seven guys together. One of them is John. The, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, the son of thunder. So seven guys are together, and verse 3, we're told Peter made a decision. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. You ever had a fishing trip like that? I have. I've had a few of those, a few too many actually. Have you ever grown tired of waiting for God to show up? If so, you can identify with Peter. Peter apparently grew tired of waiting. They went up to Galilee. They went to the mountain. Peter's thinking, man, he's supposed to be here by now. I'm going fishing. I got better things to do. So they go and jump in the boat. Now, Peter's not known for restraint, and he's definitely not given in to waiting. So he's not suggesting recreational fishing here, church. He's getting into his boat, getting out his gear. It's a lot of work to get a commercial fishing boat out again. He's returning to his former occupation. I'll help you to see that as we work through the text this morning. So in verse 3, we're told he's going fishing again. What's going on there? Well, we know the bigger story. The bigger story is that Peter has failed to do what Jesus called him to do. Jesus had told him specifically where he wanted him to be, so he failed that. 
But if we back up in time, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20, Peter's the one that hacked the guy's ear off. Peter's the one that said, everyone else may run away, but I'll never run away. Peter's the one that denied Jesus in the garden outside of Herod's palace. Peter's the one who didn't show up at the cross. Peter's the one who showed up at the tomb, as we saw a few weeks ago, and was completely confused by what had happened. So he's going back to fishing. Fishing is what he knows. Fishing is safe. Fishing is what he knows he can accomplish. So he's going to return to it. Now here's the problem. Jesus has already called them to be fishers of men to leave their nets behind. Look with me on the screen. You'll remember this, Matthew 4, 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now this is a very familiar phrase in the first century. The Greek philosophers had used it way before Jesus. To make someone a fisher of men meant to capture them with the truth. And Jesus had promised them, if you follow me, I will make you into fishers of men. I will teach you how to capture people with the truth. But we find Peter out in a boat. And so John says, that night they caught nothing. Now John's in his 90s writing this, remember? And he's looking back as when he was a very young man, and I'm sure he's smiling, thinking, man, that was a wasted night. But outside of God's will, nothing comes together. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. It's a useless night. And daylight is on the horizon. Look with me up on the screen at verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've spent any length of time in church, let me encourage you to not let that verse pass too quickly. God is standing on the beach. The resurrected Jesus, Son of God, is standing on a beach. Now, if you go back only a couple chapters, you find that God so loved the world that He came and died for the sins of the world on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. He came bursting out. It was such a huge monumental event that there was a seismic activity associated with it. Do you remember that? There was an earthquake because of the resurrection. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 28, 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. So nothing that the world had ever known before was like what had just happened. Dead people walking around the city because of Jesus' resurrection. What is God doing on the beach? I told you, God put the brakes on. And what you're looking at here is God putting the brakes on, stopping everything. What's he doing? He's watching his own doing something other than what he had told them to do. He told them specifically what he wanted them to do, and they chose to do something else. So his, his question that he puts out there for him in verse 5, it really anticipates a negative reply. Look with me, verse 5. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no, big fail. See, they had expected to catch fish all night long. And God's going to bring them face to face with their own incapacity and his capacity to supply. You want fish? I'll give you fish. And the one who created fish begins to call them in. Look with me on the screen at verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. Jesus is calling them out. Now, no doubt, these guys are exhausted and frustrated. They're professional fishermen. 
They're doing what they know to do on the job site. And somebody shows up on the shore and tells them how to do their job better than that they think they know how to do their job, how would you respond? Maybe you work on a construction site and some guy pulls his truck up alongside the road and says, hey, you're nailing that board wrong. What are you going to say back to him? Mind your own business. Can you see the disciples wanting to do that? That's been a long night for them. But there's something about the voice. Remember, they don't know who's speaking to them. That's what we're told. So there's something so authoritative, they decide to yield. Look with me at verse 6b. So they cast and they were not able, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Shock. The creator of the universe had forced all the fish out of their area during the night. And now he calls a massive school back into their area. And they're trying to capture everything that's so strong in their net, yet it's not breaking, but they can't pull it into the boat. How much fish? If you look down at verse 11, you'll see they caught 153 fish, very large according to what John wrote, and he's an eyewitness there. And these guys are professional fishermen, and they can't even pull it in. Ladies, I've been in the boat when moments like this happen, and in case you didn't know it, men snort laugh at times like this. They do a little dance in the boat, although they can't move very far, because this is exciting stuff. And these guys are professionals, so they're looking at the catch that they have. They can barely believe it. Astonishment. Warren Wearsby really captured this moment well. I wanted you to see his quote. He said this, the difference between success and failure was the width of a boat. And we are never far from success when we permit Jesus to give the orders. Now, here's a remarkable thing. In spite of the fact they're not doing what he told them to do, God is still working in their lives, not leaving them alone. See, God could have left them alone. He didn't have to have that conversation. But it's the grace of our God to show up. He's fresh from the single greatest event the world has ever known, and he decides to come to a beach. And do you notice that he's the one who initiates the process? He's the one who speaks to them and calls them. Put yourself in that boat this morning. Can you hear those times in your life when God's calling you? Try the other side. My way works way better than what you've been trying to do. Go forward with me to verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, don't you appreciate John? He never identifies himself throughout the Bible. He always calls himself this way. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And you might think, too much information. I didn't know that, need to know that Peter is stripped for work. Well, he's not totally stripped. He's wearing a loincloth. But during the hot season in the first century fishing economy, they'd take their clothes off except for the loincloth. Uh, we wouldn't put our clothes back on to jump into the water, but that's what Peter does because he doesn't want to show up on shore in front of Jesus in a loincloth. His desire is so intense to be with Jesus. Notice this. What was important to him an hour earlier is no longer important. He can't wait to get to shore. Go with me to verse 8. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread... You've been to Panera before? You know that smell of warm bread. 
And the 90-year-old John, looking back on that setting, I'm sure this is making him smile, thinking of this moment. Tell me, has Jesus been to a store? Oh, he's got a bag of Kingsford laying on the beach. Kingsford charcoal and the fish and the bread. Where does that come from? I'm speculating here, but I'm thinking God spoke that into existence. Just like he had created fish to feed the 5,000 earlier. You got the fish on the shore, the charcoal, the bread. And this is what Jesus tells them to do. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. You get an idea for the strength of Peter. That's why most artists capture him as a very large man. What six other fishermen couldn't pull in, either through adrenaline or pure strength by himself, he's able to haul that whole net into land with 153 fish. Now, if you've ever been out on the water for a day, maybe an evening of fishing, you know that chill that kinds to settle over you after a period of time and coming back onto shore, maybe after water skiing or kayaking, whatever. To arrive at shore and see a fire built, that's enough to just make you want to get up close to it. And then to see the fish and the bread. And then have God invite you to breakfast. Go with me to verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. You think they're sensing some degree of disobedience and feeling a little bit of guilt associated with it? They don't want to have conversation about who he is. They're in the presence of the resurrected king of kings and they're confident about who it is, but they don't want to say a word. And what God is doing here is inviting them into full fellowship even though they've been doing something other than what they're supposed to be doing. Go with me to verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, verse 13 is very specific. It says Jesus took the bread and gave it to them, meaning they were in such shock themselves, they didn't even reach out and take it, even though he said, come and have breakfast. He had to pick it up and give it to them for them to pick it up and take it. Wouldn't you have loved to have been walking on the beach that morning to see this scene unfold? A little mist rising off the water, the sun coming up, and you see this guy with these fishermen preparing breakfast. And one of the fishermen is drying himself off because he's just gone for a morning swim. Well, Peter's had his morning swim. He comes up to the fire, warms himself up. He's hanging around with his buddies, his fishing buddies. And I'm sure there's laughter in this moment, enjoying personal fellowship. And it's in that moment when God goes right for the heart. Go with me to the next verse, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I don't know if this is true in your life, but I've experienced it. God never makes it easy to live in disobedience to him. And he knows exactly when to go for the heart. He doesn't allow a false sense of confidence about the relationship to exist for Peter. Even though there's been fellowship and there's been warm food and there's been this time of joy sitting around the fire, this is good. But then that's when God calls him out. What do we know for sure about Peter? Well, we talked about this. He's not seen at the crucifixion. 
He's the one who denied Jesus. He's the one who's confused at the tomb. And this is the first time we see him since that period of time. This is the equivalent of God showing up and saying, Peter, what are you doing? I I told you what to do. What are you doing? What's going on in your life? And Peter really took it to heart. And I'm, I'm confident because of the structure of this verse that we've just looked at that this is a rebuke. And I'll show you how to know that. Look very closely at verse 15. When John writes it, he says, Jesus said to Simon Peter. See, that's the way John thinks of Peter. Peter is the rock. That's his name that Jesus gave him. On this rock I will build my church. Peter, this will be your name from this point forward. Well, he gave him a new name. So John, writing in his 90s, is thinking of Peter, the rock who's been a leader in the church. But when Jesus refers to him, how does he refer to him there, church? Simon, son of John, your daddy's boy. See, he's taking him all the way back to the beginning. See, Peter has started all over again. He's gone back to what he knew, his old occupation. So Jesus is calling him out. I'm going to give you your original name, Peter. And at this moment, I'm thinking Peter is cringing. Please call me the rock. But that's not what Jesus is calling him. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He's being brought face to face with his failure. Interestingly, Jesus says more than these. He uses the word hutos. In the Greek language, it means more than these things meaning all these distractions. In, in Peter's life, it's the fishing equipment, the gear, his old occupation, his friends hanging around him. Do you love me more than these things? I don't know what the these things are in your life, what the distractions are that can call you away from God and what he wants for you with this great relationship. But God's willing to call Peter out on this. Do you love me more than these things? There's a really interesting wordplay here in the Greek language. You need to see it to understand this passage. Jesus uses the word love, agapeo. I want you to see the definition for it. Agapeo is the highest form of love. It means the total commitment. You're totally committed to someone or something. You are agapeo. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do you agapeo? Me more than these things? Let's look at Peter's response. Verse 15b. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. Now, Peter is completely aware of his failure, where he has come short with God. But yet, he's willing to allow Peter to make this answer. However, can Peter make the highest claim of love? Here is Peter's response. Look on the screen. It's the word phileo. He doesn't say agapeo. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I'm fond of you. Now, you guys don't have to be wizards to know that if my wife said to me, I love you, honey, and I said back to her, yeah, I'm fond of you too, how well would that wear, okay? Just try that one. Hey, I really love you. Yeah, I like you too, okay? That's what you see Peter doing. Now, Jesus accepts Peter's answer, but he focuses him. Tend my lambs. That's his job description. That's what Christ has called him to earlier. What is Jesus doing here? He's calling Peter out. Stop pretending to be a follower of mine, Peter. Stop 
pretending and allowing everyone else to believe that you're totally in. You have walked away from what I called you to, back to what you knew. Tend my sheep, Peter. Get back on focus. Get back in the game. So that's why I ask you, what are the th- these things in your life? What are those things that pull you away from that total commitment to God? Because whenever God is calling you from something, He's always calling you to something else. Every time He calls you from, in a way, it's to something new. And that's what Jesus is reminding him. Tend my sheep. That's your job description. Go with me to verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Once again, Jesus uses the word agapeo. Once again, Peter says phileo. Do you know that the primary identification in the entire Bible for those who really love God is that it's identified through their action? Every single time you see an individual whom God says that they love him, like in the Jewish Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. See, it indicates doing. Our love for God is measured by how we carry it out in this world, our action. Like the baptism tank. Those who are willing to go in the tank, they're doing something to say, I belong to God, I'm going to put my stake in the ground. Everyone needs to identify. And that's not where Peter is at at this point. Peter's not willing to say, I identify. That's why he's using the word phileo. This is how we measure our love for God, according to 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. See, it's a doing. It's an action. That's how God's measuring it in our life. Is there any fruit? Go with me to verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Why is Peter grieved? We're told the word because there. Matter of fact, the Greek word lupeo is used, meaning he is sorrowful in his heart. He's suffering. It's really bugging him that Jesus is doing this. Why now? Even more so, on the third time are we told that he's grieved because there's been a change in vocabulary. Jesus no longer uses the word agapeo. Jesus now uses the word phileo. Peter, do you phileo me? See, Peter thought he was safe in at least claiming the lowest form of love, the lowest form of identification. But God is saying to him, do you even have that level? Jesus uses phileo because he's calling into question whether or not Peter's even there because the implication is this. The actions don't support the lowest level and it's breaking Peter's heart. It's crushing him because God's calling him out saying, I don't think you're really even there, Peter. But gratefully, Peter's failures are not the end. As you know the story, let's go to verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Up till now, Peter, you've gone fishing anytime you want to. You've said whatever you wanted to when you're in the presence of people. You claim certain things, but you don't back it up. You're going to be joining me, Peter. 
And there's a point coming now in your life when you're going to die because of me. Jesus is telling him he's going to become a martyr. That's what he's referring to here. That he's going to be crucified. They're going to bind your hands and they're going to gird you and they're going to take you where you don't wish to go. You're going to get back in the game though, First Peter. Look with me at 19b. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Literally in the Greek language, it says, keep on following me. Don't go back to what you used to do. Continue in this new path that you've discovered. Until this point, Peter is like so many of us. He's looking at what he did and thinking that disqualified him from serving God. He's looking at what he did and it took him out of the game instead of God saying to him, get your eyes off yourself and what you think you can't do. I want you to get back into the game. Look at what I'm going to do through you. You'll look through the whole Bible and you'll discover that this is the last time that Jesus ever called him son of John. It was a complete change. It was a turning point. Matter of fact, only two weeks later, Peter is standing in the temple courtyard and calling men to believe in him and to receive and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the pinnacle of the greatest moment in the history of the world, God slams on the brakes and shows us what it is to catalambano, the width and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't only die for us on the cross. He's willing to restore us and bring us back from what we knew as a former life and say, get back in the game. See, he doesn't want us to be a poser. And this is my great concern for the church today, just to be very frank with you. And I don't mean just new hope. I mean the church of Jesus Christ around the world, especially in this day and age, it is incredibly easy to be a poser and allow everyone around you to believe that you're totally in the game until God calls you out because you can hear him, hey, how about you try it my way? Do you really love me? Do you have the agapeo where you totally own this? And I want you to notice this if you take nothing else away from this this morning. Take this away. It's God himself who comes to us and gently says, what are you doing? I've showed you the right way. Don't let your past failures keep you out of the game, Peter. Get back in the game. Because here's the cool thing. God could have left Peter in the boat. He didn't have to have that conversation. Every one of the 16 that had been baptized this weekend, they could say the same thing. God didn't have to call me. He did it because of his grace and mercy and his great love. And every one of us here who have known redemption could say the same thing. You hear the voice of God calling you, try the other side. I guarantee you, if you trust him, he will reveal to you a life of peace that you have never known before. You'll find it's an amazing, amazing journey. He has a new direction for your life, church. I'm going to pray with you right now that God would just seal these truths in your heart. And that if you have this need to surrender, some of you are just busting inside saying, i got to do something with this information. I'd just love to talk to you after the service. If we've never met before, come on up and introduce yourself. But right now, let me pray for you. God, we've come to a, a very tender moment. And we recognize that your Holy Spirit is at work in moments like this. And we do not want to dismiss it lightly. Father, in the quietness of this moment, for those who might feel the need to respond in some way, I ask, God, that you would come alongside them, that you would show your compassion. 
Be that gentle voice that the disciples heard on the beach. In this moment, remind them that you're willing to be the God, not only of second chances, but of third and fourth and fifth and sixth. Father, demonstrate your power and your love at the same time. For the rest of us, God, who are walking with you and knowing what it is to be in close fellowship with you, but sometimes look like posers and we're not fully in, God, I ask that you would make us bold. Don't let us be pretenders. We want to be those who would say we have agapeo love for you that we totally own this and we're fully committed. But that can only happen through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. So God, we yield to that and ask that you would make that evident in our life this week. We ask this in the mighty name of our risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.